I have evaded in the last 50 hours since I've been here several bear attacks. <laughs> I knew they were coming for me, but my big, bad, bald self scared them off. They've not even approached me. Uh, it's, been, it's been really uh, fun, first time ever in Alaska, loved the experience here, and I want to take a, a moment too, uh, I was alerted last hour that uh, this is the Pastor Appreciation Month, and, and I want to just say, you know, from me and the other speaker, thank you uh, to Eric, and um, you know, I met Adam, and uh, the pastoral staff, uh, Holly in particular, who, you know, reached out to me as a former um, classmate at Biola. We have felt treated excellent here. It's just been uh, a, a real joy to meet so many of you. I even got rebuked by one of you for something I said yesterday, and that was awesome. <laughs> because Proverbs 27.5 says that open rebuke is better than love that is concealed. It's like, you know, that person who won't tell you that you got a booger right there. <laughs> what kind of a friend is that? <laughs> Um, so, no, seriously, appreciate that. Uh, I had someone come up to me last hour, some little kid, and give me $100. $100 bill right there. It says it right there, $100. I mean, this is a generous congregation. <laughs> this is awesome. I uh, appreciate the worship here, genuineness there. Uh, the heart, form my heart, conform my will transform my mind, which is part of our vision statement, thoughtful Christianity, transforming lives on campus today, it comes from Romans 12, 1 and 2, changing the culture tomorrow. Uh, it's been really, really fun, not done yet, but uh, really excited for this, this first time to be here and look forward to see what, what God does with it. Uh, but I'm changed already, so I appreciate, you know, being with good brothers and sisters. And one other thing, too, for our ministry, some of you know something about it because you were here yesterday, um, but even though we've been around for 10 years and we're trying to impact the universities, predominantly the secular universities, and reclaim the intellectual voice of Christ there, um, we've found in a decade that some of our, our biggest obstacles are actually pastors. Uh, that make it very difficult for our missionaries to raise support. They don't want what we have in some of their churches, and so it makes it difficult to partner, and you guys are just most fortunate to have a pastoral staff that does an event like this, the Christian Thought Forum, uh, and wants to impact the community. So this is, uh, you know, praise the Lord for what a blessed opportunity you have here. Well, if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, or Moroni chapter 10 if you brought your book of more. Just kidding. Matthew chapter 7. Even from a secularist viewpoint who does not look at the Bible with eyes that this is the Word of God, the Sermon on the Mount is an incredibly elegant and beautiful piece of literature. It's just, it's incredible. Uh, we want to just spend some time in a couple of verses, and one in particular, and then we'll come back to it. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened. Sounds pretty generous, right? Or what man is there among you, when his son shall ask him for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone? Or if he shall ask for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? And most of us, well, in the lower 48, we can intuit 
um, you know, that that would be a bad thing to do. But up in Alaska, I've learned quickly that this place allows men to be men. And, you know, it's like, look, tough it up, kid. Here's a stone. <laughs> you know? Uh, I can see how maybe it wouldn't be as easy to interpret this. <laughs> um, no, but seriously, you don't have to have someone explain why that's the case. You don't have to reflect on it deeply. There was nothing of that here. It's simply the assumption is made. I mean, seriously, what man would, if his son asked him for a loaf of bread, would give him a rock? Or a fish would give him a snake? We know certain moral features of the world. We don't have to have even the biblical text to know these things. And what evidence do we have for that? Well, think about back in Genesis. You have Cain and Abel. And God's dialogue with Cain was, don't do this. You know it's wrong. You know it's wrong. Don't do it. Put, put the stick down, right? Well, he just killed him. And he said, have you done this thing? He's like, oh, I mean, what could I do? I didn't have Moses' Ten Commandments yet. I'm not really guilty. No. He knew what he did before he was confronted with it and sent away. Why? Even before he had the command, thou shall not murder? Because there are certain things you can't not know. You've been created in God's image, Genesis 1. And you have conscience with knowledge, Romans 2. And since the beginning of creation, God's invisible attributes, his divine knowledge, his eternal power have been uh, clearly known through what has been seen out there and intuited in here. You can't unless you try hard to suppress certain things about God. The design out there, the Immanuel Kant philosopher said, and the moral law within. And today we're talking about the moral law. We continue on here. If then you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So he uses, Jesus uses here an a fortiori argument. Uh, if, if this is true, and you all know it's true, then how much more is this true? If it's true that you being evil can intuit and know and apply, give good gifts to your children, how much more so is it the case that the source of all goodness, the ground of goodness. God himself would give good gifts to those who ask. And he didn't just call him God. He called him Father. First time that's mentioned is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now we've got not just the source of goodness, but we've actually got a connection, a relational connection not just an ob a knowledge of objective goodness in the world and account for it, but it's grounded in a relationship, father to son. Now, ratio Christi is the reason of Christ. It is not ratio Dei, the reason of God, but the reason of Christ, a Christ-centered ministry. And our mission is to help people overcome obstacles to belief with historical, scientific, and philosophical objections. But the po 
focal point is apologetics evangelism, giving a reasoned defense, showing that Christianity is not only reasonable, but the most reasonable uh, available of all options. Finally, in light of all of that, it says, therefore, and you always want to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? In light of what was just said, however, you want people to treat you, so treat them, for this is the law and the prophets. This morning, we're going to be talking about the golden rule and its apologetic value in worldviews and religions, because this is a, an apologetics weekend, a Christian thought forum. Do to others as you want others to do to you. That's the golden rule. That expression is one of the most well-known uh, ethical principles in all time. Some have said it's the supreme ethical principle. I, I don't know about that, but it certainly is pervasive. The evidence is ubiquitous. Everybody, not at a time, but also through time, uh, has knowledge of this moral truth. Now, some will make the claim that all religions teach the same basic moral truths, right? Mm, yes and no. Uh, did you know that al-Baghdadi, uh, al, what's his name, al-Baghdadi, <laughs> big daddy, uh, al-Baghdadi, the supreme leader of ISIS, was killed over the last couple of days. After nine years, he met with justice. The things he did were unconscionable. Not all religions do teach the same moral truths. That's not to say that Muslims are all bad. But Islam has certain teachings that separate it from what Jesus taught, different than what Jesus taught. And you can see how it played out in Islamic history in the first hundred years. First hundred years, it expanded by sword because his frontline disciples, Muhammad's frontline disciples, knew what his interpretation of jihad was. They were the ones who carried it out. They were the ones who dined with him and ate with him and spent time with him. And so the debate over what jihad means, they say you just have to look at Muhammad's life and character. He was involved in 12 battles himself and um, advanced life with the sword to the point where the Islamic empire was greater than the Greek empire in just 100 years. Jesus took the world by love. There's a big difference there. Um, all religions teach the same basic moral truths. Well, some, some of the same fundamental moral truths. And we can expect that to be the case, at least the, the rudiments of it. It might be distorted, it might be corrupted. Uh, but at least it's there because we are created in God's image with conscience, conscience. There are certain things we can't not know. The Christian worldview has the best explanation for why we all have some of the same basic moral truths, even if they differ slightly here and there and are corrupted here or there, right? You get some people who come up with this idea called religious pluralism. This is one of the big objections to Christianity, where, um, you know, if, if Christianity is supposed to be the way, the life, and the truth, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but by me. Well, that's very exclusive. That's very exclusive in an age where we want to be diverse and inclusive, right? 
The aim here for this morning is not to focus so much on the ethical rule, but on its apologetic value in comparing it to other world religions and worldviews. The golden rule is universally known through empathy, even without the Bible. Remember, there are, you can know the moral law without special revelation because God has created us that way. It is universally known through empathy because we see someone hurt on the ground and we, we say, wow, if I, were, if I were like that, if I were similarly situated, I would want help. Therefore, I'm going to go help, right? We empathetically come to know this law even before seeing it in the Bible. Now, it was first called the golden rule in the 17th century by Christians, and that implies something about its value, gold, right? We're going to find there's some comparisons with it too. It is universally known through empathy. Everyone throughout time has intuitive uh, grasp and access of this simple rule. But it is uniquely shown through Jesus. It is inclusive in its application to everybody, but it is exclusive in terms of its explanation to Christianity. Christianity best explains the existence of the golden rule, and Jesus is doubtlessly the best exemplar for the golden rule. Pluralism again. Um, all religious truth claims are inclusively true, and religious truth claims that are intended as exclusive are false. I remember after 9-11, uh, there was this big televised event at the National Church in D.C., and I remember Billy Graham was invited there, uh, this speaker, that speaker, and it, there was one, I think he was an Episcopal uh, priest or something, he got up and he said something like, uh, to the God of Abraham, of Mohammed, and the Father of Jesus Christ, we pray. And I thought, that's profound. He just offended every Jew, Muslim, and Christian who traditionally believe that those views are the correct view. Because this is what religious pluralism does. It says any view who says our view is the truth is exclusive and false. Guess what they just did with that principle? They just made an exclusive rule that any view who makes an exclusive rule is false. That's called self-defeat, right? It's self-contradictory. Um, so religious pluralism, while it may sound good and welcoming to all, it's really not. It says that all religions, all worldviews that make exclusive truth claims, which is all of them, they're all wrong. And our religion called pluralism, uh, the a menu option, uh, you know, a golden corral menu, that view is true. Look, these views have different contradictory elements to them. Uh, you can't have both Islam and Buddhism true. Buddhism at its heart, especially in Theravadan Buddhism, the first 500 years, it's non-theistic. There is no God. Islam says there is a God. Logic says both of those cannot be true. This is not a hateful thing, it's just logic, right? Two plus two equals four. You know, ah, oh, you're such a, you know, bigot. No, that's just the nature of truth. Truth is exclusive to error. If two plus two equals four, 
It can't be five or three or other infinite number of possibilities. That doesn't make you a bigot. That's just rational, right? The Bible says there's salvation in no other name than Jesus. Now, I tell my uh, students when I teach comparative religions uh, at Indiana University, I just actually stopped um, this last semester. I was there for about 12 years. That, and I, I don't let them know yet that I'm a Christian. I wait till about mid-semester to self-identify. Um, I say that Christianity, uh, Jesus in particular, is the rational preference. If you're going to start a spiritual journey, Christianity is naturally the rational first preference. It's the starting place. Why? Because you don't have time. You have maybe your 70 years, but some people die much earlier, and, and maybe you're already close to that age. You don't have time. You simply don't have the time or the resources to get out there and interview nearly 8 billion people to find the truth, right? You have limited time, and so you start with the big ones. If God exists, if divinity is real and has somehow revealed itself or we've discovered it, it would seem plausible that it would have already been done. And if it's true, it has tested, it has withstood the test of time. And so you start with the major five or major ten and then work your way down, right? You, you could start with the guy that, you know, is drunk off his stump. Jack Daniels, you know, a fifth of whiskey. Oh, I got a view. My view is true. Come and interview me. Why would you start there? <laughs> right? You can, but why? Jesus is the rational first preference. Why? Christianity is the largest world religion or philosophical mu movement in history, bar none. You start at the top. No other religious leader claimed to be God in the way Jesus did. That was a very incredible and audacious claim. Either he's a nut for claiming it, or, or maybe there's something there. No other religious leader lived the credible life of someone who made such a claim like that. Buddha didn't. You think about the parable of the um, burning house where Buddha tells the story of kids who are trapped in a burning home, and he says, come on out, kiddies, I have candy out here. He lies to them. The end justifies the means, where Jesus would go in. Uh, he wasn't like Muhammad. We already explained that. There's, it is incomparable. When you ask someone about Jesus, what do you know about him? They never say he was evil. There's, they always say, a oh, good moral teacher or something like that. There's not a, not, a, not a piece of dirt for a political campaign that you can have on Jesus. What would it be? No one has it. Joseph Smith, don't get me started. You know, he, my family first was Mormon, uh, uh, 1836, six years after the publishing of the Book of Mormon, and my family defected on the first Mormon splinter group because he was busy assigning other men's wives to himself at the time, um, ruining people's homes and families. He was not a good man. Eastern religions are sufficiently obtuse to entertain Christ. What do I mean by that? Uh, there's, you know, there's, there's more than one way. Uh, there's a lot of ways and there's a lot of avatars, incarnations, uh, divine incarnations. Christ is one. I've got a holy cow right here who is another. Um, holy cow, man. Uh, but seriously, holy cow, I've got, you know, 300 million gods. Christ is viewed by many as an avatar, an incarnation. I could start there because i got a lot of time as well, Right? 
If I get it wrong in this life, I might come back as a carrot or a gnat, God forbid, uh, or maybe a holy cow. But I've got a long time to get it right. Same thing with Buddhism. Uh, Jesus is viewed by some as a bodhisattva, an enlightened one, come back to teach. And again, I've got a long time through reincarnations perhaps to, to get it right. So if I've got a lot of time and there are others in the top five or ten that give me a limited range, I better start there. I better start with the Western religions that say, "Uh uh-uh, this lifetime alone. Whoa, okay. Whoa, Nelly. Let's start there. The Western religions point to Christ, to a Messiah. In prospect, Judaism has always looked forward to a Messiah. And now you can ask any rabbi, probably over 50% of uh, persons who claim to be Jewish today are atheist or agnostic. They've given up hope in that. They've reinterpreted what Messiah even means. Maybe it's a nation. But they they don't really think that a Messiah is coming most. And in Islam, Jesus is actually called a Messiah. He's called a prophet. He's called a teacher in the Quran. So if Muslims can look back on Christ with a positive light, what did he teach? And if Jews are looking for a Messiah and it hasn't come and the hope is left out there, can we reconsider him? And if the East is so obtuse, you have so much time and he's already got some, some good street cred as an avatar or bodhisattva, and it's the world's largest religion, and something has to account for why he was so attractive. You begin your spiritual journey with Jesus. That's just preference, rational preference. Now we're going to look at why it makes more sense. We're going to talk about the golden rule and its apologetic value. Here we begin with a contemporary atheistic neuroscientist. And again, we're looking at world religions, and we're looking at science in terms of worldview. For several years now, I have been reading far and wide in the literature of religions throughout the world, looking to answer just one question. Can I find an ethical command that seems to be true of all religions across continents and across centuries? Well, I found one, and you'll recognize it instantly. You probably know it as the golden rule. Once I found abundant evidence for the universal ethical principle, I was convinced there must be a biological reason for it. Current neuroscientist, an atheist, two things are notable here. One, he noted in all this discovery, in all this research, at a time and through time, there's one fundamental principle, at least, that we can know, that we can all grasp, and it's called the golden rule. So note number one, there is evidence of a golden rule, a moral rule And there are several more that we could add to this stock to create a moral law, and then we'll want to ask about how do you have a moral law without a moral law maker, right? But we've got this evidence, ubiquitous, pervasive evidence, at a time and through time, of a moral rule known as the golden rule. But second, we know there has to be a biological reason for it. Why? Because if naturalism is true, if atheism is true, If all there is, was, or ever will be is nature, as Carl Sagan told us, then you have to have a natural explanation. Everything is cashed out in terms of chemistry or physics or maybe biology, right? All of your hopes, your beliefs, your longings, there's always a a neurological or biological explanation for it. If naturalism is the only game in town. But that begs the question, who says that it is? Why must there be 
a biological reason for it rather than a psychological or better yet, theological reason for it. Told you there was a golden rule and there is golden for a reason. It's looked at as supreme in value. There are others, other variations that are called silver and there is a weight difference there in value. We want to look at examples, at representations, statements from all of the major world religions and views, to include Darwinism. Confucianism says this, do not impose upon others those things that you yourself do not desire. Now, can you notice the distinction there? The golden rule was do to others what you want others to do to you. Confucius say, when you break the fortune cookie, Confucius say, do not impose upon others those things that you yourself do not desire. Don't do to others what you don't want others to do to you. It's the negative. It's the do no harm principle. It's not the positive. Do the virtue. It's avoid the vice, right? That will be significant in itself. But a couple of problems, one would be that, what about love? Okay, so I, I avoid hate, but what about love? Seems to be a virtue. It seems to be one of the highest virtues, if we're counting. And then the authority issue. Why should I give a rip about that anyway? I mean, that was just some dude who found himself in a fortune cookie. There's no commander to give me a command to do no harm to other people. So why shouldn't I? Why not do it? Well, because it's wrong. Who says it's wrong? Confucius or you? From whence comes this authority? But for now, we just want to say silver rule. The negative, right? Buddhism, also the silver rule. Buddha says, on traversing all directions with the mind, one finds no one dearer than oneself. He likes himself. Likewise, everyone holds himself most dear, hence one who loves himself should not harm another. This is popular as the do-no-harm principle in the East. You know, people talk about, ah, I'm, I'm an enlightened person, I'm going to be a Buddhist, um, right? Um, and because it's so peaceful and uh, they, they don't harm anyone. When you think about a Buddhist monk, they don't harm anyone. The do-no-harm principle, right? There's no love here. There's do-no-harm here, which that's good. I don't want people harming me. That's great. No, that's good. But there's better and there's best, and, and love is best. We all know that. You don't have to have someone explain that to you. You can intuit that. If you had two principles, which one would you want? So, no harm, but then it, there is this issue, a major doctrine in Buddhism that they contradict Hinduism over. It's a big debate between Buddhism and Hinduism. Buddhism came from Hinduism. Buddha was a Hindu prince. It's called the no-self doctrine. In Buddhism, they don't believe there is a self. That's part of the grand delusion. So even the idea of reincarnation for Buddhism is a bit different here right? Uh, but this no self is telling other selves to not harm other selves. Eh? I thought that was part of the delusion. 
Ethically, it's problematic, too, because I remember when I was an undergrad at Multnomah Bible College, we were downtown doing uh, ministry to the homeless, and we went into a convenience store to buy some gloves for a, a lady, and she was standing at the door, and I was up at the uh, counter at the cashier, and the cashier, after I got talking with her, uh, a Buddhist, um, she said, why are you helping her? And I said, well, because she's cold. It's freezing out there. Yes, but why are you trying to help her? Don't you realize you're harming her in helping her? Why? Because she's working off her karma. She got exactly what she deserved from her past life. And if you help her, you'll actually harm her. Wow, that's a conundrum. So you see someone, you know, off the side of the freeway in their wheelchair tipped over. Don't stop to help because that would be harmful. Wow. Do no harm. What about love? Hinduism Silver rule, one should not behave toward others in a way which is disagreeable to oneself. This is the essence of morality. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. All other activities are due to selfish desire. Now, this comes from the Mahabharata. Uh, I, one problem is the principle of ahisma, uh, which is nonviolence. You've heard of Gandhi, and he has a reputation of being peaceful and nonviolent. And, you know, the Beatles went there and they said, peace and love and, whoa, no war. And they brought it all back and then just ruined the country. Still sounds good, though. I like the music. <laughs> um, don't get me started. I was going into one song in my mind right now, <laughs> uh, which is quite, quite Marxist. But this idea of nonviolence, okay, it's do no harm, but within the caste system. Remember, these things are not in a vacuum. They're born in a worldview. The caste system, you have the the Brahman class, the intellectuals, the priests, you have the Dalits who are, you know, just, they're way out beyond the caste. These are the worthless people that you don't stop by at all to help. You don't even acknowledge their existence. You have the warrior class, and that's what the Bhagavad Gita is about. The story of Argun is this, you know, this warrior, uh, Arjuna, this warrior who's got a dharma, a duty how do you fulfill your duties as a warrior with the principle of ahisma, sorry, nonviolence? <laughs> Some of this stuff seems incoherent, but in the East, we have a different view of logic, we're told. Okay. Um, apart from those issues, our focal point is it's still silver. It's silver. It's inferior in its articulation and its formulation. How about the West? Jesus, golden, do to others as you would have then uh, others do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This is a prescription. In the Greek, it's an imperative. This makes the most sense if others have a claim on me. For example, if I'm made in the image of God, if you're made in the image of God, you have a claim on me. I owe you something. You owe something to me. I owe you respect. I owe you dignity. All lives matter because we're not coming from the jungle, but because we've been created in God's image with intrinsic dignity. Right? Judaism. Silver rule. Hillel comes along as one of the greatest known teachers in Judaism ever, certainly in the rabbinic period. He trained Gamaliel, who was then apprenticing Paul. 
If you go to a university campus and you find a Jewish group, they have the Hillel Foundation there. Hillel said this, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. That is the whole Torah. The rest is just commentary. The negative formulation. Jesus comes along a decade or two later, this little whippersnapper, and you know what he was saying here. Other people knew what was going on. He said, do to others what you would have others do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Smack down. Islam. Ah, G with scare quotes. A sort of particularized golden rule. None of you believes, you're not a real believer, until you love or until he loves for his Muslim brother what he loves for himself. You can see the golden in that. Until he loves for his Muslim brother. Are you a Muslim brother? It's a very selective golden rule. And some would argue, based on the internal debate with Muslim scholars on jihad, that those outside of the brotherhood have something else coming. Hmm? And those inside Islam who are internal to the debate, everyone else stands back and eats popcorn and watches the internal Muslim debate happen, argue that history is on our side, that jihad means what we say it means, because look at Muhammad's life himself, look at his first generation disciples who ate with him, talked with him, dined with him, were friends with him, and then carried out the mission for 100 years. And the law of abrogation works in Islam where the most recent passages trump older passages, and the most recent passage on jihad is very specific on this. Kill apostates. If they're non-brothers, they've got something else coming. Jesus talked about an enemy love. Not quite the same. It's limited and it's anti-golden when you consider at least a certain batch of infidels, if not all infidels. Islam doesn't mean peace. It means submission, and there will be peace after everyone submits. Darwinism, let's come back to the science for a moment now, and don't start with the contemporary neurologist, but with Darwin himself here. The social instincts, the prime principle of man's moral condition, with the aid of active intellectual powers, nature, and the effects of habit, nurture, naturally lead to the golden rule. As ye would that men should do to you, do ye to them likewise. And this, at this lies at the foundation of morality. The term golden rule had been around for a century by this time, and he recognized it in the descent of man. Everybody knows the golden rule. At a time and through time, in all worldviews and religions. Darwinism, a uh, contemporary uh, Darwinist who has written 40 books on the topic, 20 philosophical, 20 scientific. He's a contributing author to one of my books, His Faith in God Reasonable. He's an atheist. Michael Roos says this, the position of the modern evolutionist is that humans have an awareness of morality be uh, because such an awareness is of biological worth. Morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is just an illusion. Now, I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, that's kind of where it's coming from, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. There are no objective moral facts. 
there are appearances of good and evil that have been fobbed off on us by our genes so long as they confer survival advantage, right? It's like Peter was talking to you about intelligent design. Richard Dawkins says, we always have to keep reminding ourselves that what appears to be designed in nature really isn't. (laughs) No, it really is. And so are moral features of the world. We know these things. No, they're just part of the illusion helping us to survive, right? They help us as a group. We can do bigger and better things together if we do these things. But it's expedient. It's not a moral law. There's no prescription here. It is merely descriptive. And so problems, one is it is descriptive cooperation isn't the same as prescriptive or imperative or normative morality. That's where the oughtness comes from. There's no oughtness in nature. Uh, the, 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 you know, the, the bear out there sees a hurt uh, poor little reindeer that I went and visited yesterday. Thank God for the fences. Um, <clears throat> you know, it sees the hurt reindeer, and it comes along and says, Oh, you poor thing, we need to get you a Band-Aid. No, it just eats him. Right? There's no oughtness there. You ought to have compassion. That doesn't come from nature. Nature is cruel in that world. Devoid of the normative feature, how do we necessarily avoid conclusions from the book A Natural History of Rape, The Biological Basis for Sexual Coercion? I really hit a hornet's nest on this one in grad school at Purdue, and I had people prank calling me at 3 o'clock in the morning. This is written by two evolutionary biologists. It was brand new back then, so now it's about 15 years old. But remember, if naturalism is true, if atheism is true, then everything has to have a natural, not a supernatural, explanation. That includes your beliefs, your longings, your hopes, your behavior, everything. So how do you explain rape in Darwinism? The strongest male in every population seeks to perpetrate as many females as possible in order to perpetuate its DNA. Perpetrate to perpetuate. But girls don't take it personal. It's just spreading your seed. Happens every day out there. Right. Don't we know that rape is wrong? Well, let's apply this now and talk about the silver rule because that's what everybody else seems to abide by at best. The silver rule is sort of like skepticism. The virtue of it is that, you know, of skepticism is that you'll never have any false beliefs because you'll never have any beliefs, even true beliefs, right? Because you're a skeptic. Do no harm, the virtue of it is you'll never commit any vices, you'll never make any mistakes in seeking to attempt virtues because you're really not trying to do good, to love, you're trying to avoid evil. Now let's look at how this looks. The Good Samaritan story, you've got this guy who um, you know, is over here on the side of the road and he's hurt and you say, oh man, poor guy, uh, what do I do? Uh, well, you know, look at the time. See ya. You walk off. Next guy comes up and he sees this and he goes, oh my goodness, that looks like an open wound. Ooh, that hurts. You got to get a doctor for that. Boy, look at the time. Walks off. Third guy comes up and I don't care if you've, you're just reading or hearing this story for the first time 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years from now, in China, in India, in Africa, in America, or in the sticks, or anywhere. Everyone intuits this third guy better do the right thing, right? There are certain things you can't not know. He better help him. The golden rule, right? That's only found most articulately and grounded 
in Jesus. The golden rule and the moral argument for God's existence. The golden rule actually functions to help buttress premise two in a moral argument to show that there are many rules, but here's a very clear one, to argue for God's existence too. If God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties do exist, and by logical inference, God exists. And you use the golden rule as one. Human sex trafficking would be another obvious one. Uh, you know, batting a homosexual over the head just for fun. It's a favorite one that I love to use in my ethics class. It makes moral relativists no longer relativists after, you know, a couple of weeks. Because um, I asked that question. How many of you think it's okay to take a big bat and hit a homosexual over the head just for fun? Anybody? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? No. Everybody knows moral features in the world. But what best explains this? What explains it is better explained by a moral person than by matter. The golden rule, here's an objection, says do to others what you want them to do to you. Now this is an objection because it seems to be grounded in desires rather than duties, right? Well, what if I was a person who embraced pain and suffering, sadomasochism, <laughs> do to others what you want others to do to you? Or what if I was a person who always wanted mercy by the judge? Should the, should, and now I'm a judge. If I would always want mercy, I should never sentence anyone. I should exonerate them all. No more justice. Right? The problem is, this takes this out of context and puts it in a vacuum. But nothing exists in a vacuum. Um, this uh, it doesn't tell us what we ought to do is the charge or what we ought not to do. Uh, it doesn't morally prescribe or proscribe, but it actually does. The golden rule doesn't emerge in a vacuum like other ethical principles. It is considered in the context of a worldview and a text. And so coming back to the text we were talking about, it's grounded in a view of God that provides a ground for objective morality and moreover, relationality between divine and human, and between humans and humans, but more importantly, between divine and human, and any person who is walking by the Spirit ought to be able to figure this out as well uh, in cases where to apply this. Galatians 5.16 says, walk by the Spirit and you will, ooh, may, you will not not carry out the desires of the flesh. It's a way, not like mathematics, where two negatives makes a positive. It's a double negative, which means there ain't no way you're going to carry out the desire of the flesh. You've got a worldview. You've got a context in the text of Scripture and practical wisdom that ground this. Um, that this is not, um, you know, do to others what you want them to do to you. Talking about moral relativism, subjective preferences and desires and orientations. You ever heard that word orientation before? Usually applied in certain contexts. My orientation is this. I have preferences for this. I have desires for that. Not all desires are good, are they? Smoking desires, desire for too much sugar, desire for the wrong kind of intercourse. Yeah, there are desires, there are orientations. No one joked, no, no one says there aren't. I, I didn't just, I wasn't just, I didn't just choose to like chocolate. I just naturally have an orientation to it. Too much of it's going to be bad though, isn't it? This is not saying do to others whatever you desire. 
Have at it. Have fun. Now, belief is the truth. What desire is to desirable. The world is a certain way. I want my beliefs to conform to the way reality is. Truth is that which conforms to reality, that which represents reality. I don't believe something and that makes it real. I want to believe what is real, right? Likewise, I want my desires to conform to what is desirable. There is a way that the world ought to be, right? I may desire to hit some guy in the face, but that's not what is optimal, what I ought to do, what is desirable. My nine-year-old, now 10, uh, she loves cotton candy and think that's, thinks that's what's desirable. I have to keep putting the broccoli in front of her face and, you know, she does that every time. But what she desires and what is desirable for objective health are not the same. Okay, in moderation, but I want to cultivate her desires so that they conform, the song, conform, transform, right? So that they conform to what is desirable. The world isn't just whatever way we want it. There is a moral fabric and an explanatory ultimate for the way things ought to be. And we all know this. And so finally, in application, the rule in ethics has a role in apologetics. The rule points beyond itself from being a mere moral precept and even principle to its ground in a moral person. What do I mean by that? If you can look at Christian ethics like this, where you have three concentric circles, and the outside are the superficial precepts, then you have more deep principles that seem to have more agreement transculturally. And then you have a person, right? You've all experienced this at home, either as a child or as the parent or both, where you say, don't do that, Johnny. Why? Because it's wrong. Why is it wrong? Because it's not right. Why isn't it right? Because it's wrong. Why is it wrong? Because it's not right. Why is it? Because I'm the parent and I said so and that's that. Right? <laughs> that's totalitarianism, you Stalinist parents. We've all done it, right? And for good measure, when they're that age, it's like, I'm not going to argue with you. I'll explain the rationale for it later. Right now, get your hand out of the socket. You're going to die. Right? You move beyond the precept to the principle later when you explain, right? Well, precepts are like, don't murder. I know it sounds wild. Those are the superficial elements. <laughs> don't lie, right? But we don't want to stop there because that would make us just legalists. Just, you know, power, authoritarian. Don't murder because it violates a universal principle, the sanctity of human life. Well, the atheist says, we want to stop right there and just say it just exists. I don't want to be the Darwinist and be a moral relativist over here. I want to say that moral absolutes do exist, but they're just floating around out there in abstract space somewhere, whatever that means. Even if I could make sense of that, still, I don't owe anything to the light bulb or to the roof or to the carpet. I owe something to you and you to me. Moral properties are always properties of persons. So the atheist who doesn't want to bite the bullet and become a moral relativist and he wants to have abstract objects as moral facts and that they exist out there, they just do and I have no further explanation, it's not good enough because moral properties are always properties of persons. The Christian has better explanatory power because God is life. Don't murder because it violates the principle of the sanctity of human life because God is life. Don't lie because it violates the 
principle of truth-telling, the virtue of honesty, because God is truth. And at the end of the day, all the commandments, as weird as some of them might sound to you in the Old Testament even, they all somehow come back into the middle and what fundamental morality is, is not just commandment keeping or commandment breaking. It is shalom, right relationship with God. When you sin, you violate relationship. And this is what Christ came to do. Not just as a moral exemplar if you act in this way. To bring us back into harmony with the God who is the ground for morality. The explanatory ground for things like the golden rule. And so essentially, that passage in the golden rule, God is, God is good, he's perfect. Be perfect even as your Father in heaven's been perfect. Now go be good to others the way you would want others to treat you. God, thank you for uh, this time. Thank you for your word. And thank you for uh, just nature and reason and that you have not left us without a witness, that you um, love us and that you pursue us. Help us, God, to help others toward you. In Jesus' name, amen.